There is so much confusion and so much concern about the whole question of a vaccine passport or a certificate. Is this going to give us the freedom that we so desperately want to be able to see family and move around and maybe even travel again? Or is it some very risky invasion of our personal privacy and our health data, perhaps the most precious of our uh, private information. So we are going to take a look at this issue. Recently, we've had two different guests with us on No Nonsense with two very different views of this. So we're going to start with Dr. Anne Kavukian. Uh, she seriously has some concerns about this and will be following up with our conversation with Blake Murdoch, who is a research associate at the University of Alberta's Health Law Institute, and he's very much in favor of vaccine passports. So here come the two conversations to help you make some decisions. Dr. Anne Kabukian, one of the world's leading privacy experts, she was the former and longtime Information Privacy Commissioner in Ontario. She now leads a group called the Privacy by Design Center of Excellence, advising, amongst others, the corporate world on all these issues. But perhaps it is her training as a psychologist that may prove the most useful <laughs> on all of this. And welcome. Very nice to see you. Thank you so much, Pamela. It's a pleasure. Let's take a look at this, this whole issue of vaccine passports. What's your, what's your top line? What's your bottom line here? I'm sure it won't surprise you that I am strongly opposed to vaccine passports. First of all, this is your health information, which deserves the strongest privacy and should not be widely shared. It should be your decision entirely, which will go out the door of vaccine passports. But also vaccine passports, they will leave such a trail of surveillance. Some, some people are calling them it vaccine surveillance because it'll create this inescapable web of geolocation tracking because so many places are going to be collecting it, not just when you're traveling at airports, but gyms and um, hair salons and shops and, and, everywhere. and everywhere you go, they're going to collect this information, which will leave a trail of where you've been. They're saying it's creating this, it will create this new global digital infrastructure, which will just continue extensively well beyond the end of the pandemic. Remember, pandemics start and they end, but the measures that are introduced during a pandemic or a terrorist incident like 9-11, they continue afterwards to erode your privacy. You never, they, they never say, okay, we're going to stop this now. This will continue and this will be on a global scale, which is why it terrifies me in terms of the potential for surveillance have this conversation in a sane and rational way because as soon as you start to say can any you know can you have a right not to be vaccinated and I'm fully vaccinated and I'm a believer that we need to do it but as soon as you start to raise any questions you're you're immediately attacked for being you know anti-vax you know an anti-vaxxer yeah. or a luddite technologically and the, the reality is and you don't hear it anymore. When the vaccines were first developed, they said anyone who has allergies requiring the use of an EpiPen, for example, stay away from these vaccines. They will do you in. No one's saying that anymore. So there's a number of people, lots of people, who cannot get vaccinated. It will impact their health very negatively. You don't even hear that. So what about all those poor people who simply cannot do it for health reasons? 
No one is addressing those issues. And this is what concerns me so much that this will create some kind of national caste system where people who don't have it will be looked down upon and it is, it's going to be appalling. We have to avoid that kind of society. Not just looked down upon, but denied access to things. Yes. So, you, know, you lose your rights as a citizen to work and, and go to movies and gather with your friends and even get sick from something else and seek treatment in a hospital if somehow yes. you are one of those people that can't as opposed to won't be vaccinated. Agreed. And you see, what they could do is instead of requiring a vaccine passport when you travel or wherever, they could just require um, evidence of, of a test that you've tested for COVID and you're negative, a negative test for COVID. That's all you need to demonstrate is that you're, you're not COVID positive. So beyond that, they don't need to know anything. And that's the problem. They don't want to address any of those issues. They want to create these passports, which will lay down the um, digital infrastructure for massive surveillance, because this is going to be collected everywhere you go. And that's what concerns me enormously. We've been fighting surveillance forever, and it's growing now, but I, outside of this area, but in this area, um, it, it just concerns me enormously. And let me remind people, privacy forms the foundation of our freedom. If you value free and open societies, we have to have a solid foundation of privacy. We can't have it be eroded like this. And this is what makes me crazy when you talk on that scale, it growing over time, these vaccine passports globally everywhere. I mean, what I fear, and I know this is going to sound so extreme, you know, in China, they have social credit scores where they know what everybody's doing and where they are and stuff. I mean, this could parallel that in terms of governments and centralized authorities knowing everything about you, all your movements, your coming and going and what you've been doing. And we could kiss our privacy goodbye and we can never do that. Privacy forms the foundation of our freedom. We have to find a way to fight this. I think that's the issue that has everybody a little bit um, even more nervous than about the vaccine itself or the vaccine passport itself is this connection with your location, your, your geolocating. I mean, now parents can put a tracker on their kids, on their phones. We're already doing that. And there seems to be, um, you know, a slow acceptance of I that know. kind of surveillance. It's, it's appalling to me. And, you know, spouses wanting to surveil their partners. I mean, it's ridiculous. It is just so appalling. And the awful thing about the vaccine passports, these are theoretically well-intentioned. Mm -hmm. They're trying to help everyone. But the outcome is going to be the exact opposite. It will erode our privacy completely, erode our freedom. And there are centralized authorities who are collecting this data. This data will be retained centrally and will be able to be shared with third parties unknown. You will have no control over your information. And this terrifies me. You know, in the, all the years I've been, I've been in this business well over 20 years, and I have never been so concerned as I am now. So let me put the, the question the other way. Is there a circumstance, uh, for example, we're seeing new variants and, and perhaps the vaccines are um, not responding. We know they're doing, or at least we think we know they're doing pretty well against the existing ones, but there are new ones. Would something like a deadly variant warrant 
an infringement on our rights and our privacy? I'm not going to say flat out no, because we'd have to examine the situation, everything. But let me remind people, you know, the Spanish flu years ago, uh-huh. it came and went. They didn't have vaccines or anything. Yes, people died, but then people recovered and, the, and it ended. Pandemics come and they go. They end. Solutions are found. So what I don't want to create is an inescapable web of surveillance, vaccine surveillance, People feeling they have no choice, they have to do this. And then that's it. They lose control. That's what I want to avoid. I can't, I can't support the wiping out of our privacy over time. I'm wondering, and I'm sure you're getting a lot of response uh, to your comments and your very <sighs> strong point of view on this. What, how are people reacting to you? Um, both the, the, the plus and minus. So let me start by saying I've received a number of extremely positive responses thanking me for raising this unpopular view because it is unpopular and people are afraid to speak about it. But I have an equal, if not greater number of really vicious attacks that people think I'm crazy and what am I doing? And I shouldn't be allowed to speak at all. This is what troubles me because, and and we started with this, which is we need to be able to discuss these things uh, as a society. You know, we need to be able to wrestle these issues, not in the heat of an election campaign or not in the middle of a crisis or the height of a pandemic, but sit down and say, you know, what are our charter and constitutional rights when it comes to this? How do we balance that against the rights of the larger group that people who are not vaccinated may in fact pose some threat? How do we even construct that conversation? Very difficult questions you're raising. And they need to be addressed, of course. But everyone is ducking it. People, yeah. look at all the politicians. They're all in in support of vaccines and indirectly vaccine passports. They're ducking the issue. They don't want to address the privacy concerns. And the, the, the reality is nobody is talking about how this data is going to be retained centrally. And you won't be able to get out of it, if you will, after the fact. That's what concerns me. Um, Creating this unbelievable, inescapable web of geolocation tracking. Which which in turn can be hacked. (laughs) That's the other issue. If if all of this is collected on us uh, and stored somewhere, then it's subject to hacking by whomever. And it will be, Pamela, there's no question, because this data will be restored, uh, stored centrally. It'll be accessed by governments all around the world in different departments and all kinds of, you know, football stadiums and soccer stadiums. That would be ridiculous. So you know it's going to be hackable. And the, the, the problems will just mount on an increasing basis. And putting this in the larger context, for example, for the last... Um several weeks in the Senate, we've been uh, doing battle over Bill C-10. Yes. Uh, This is, you know, supposedly changes to the Broadcast Act, but uh, an exemption to protect user-generated content, our tweets, this podcast, anything, uh, removed from that legislation. In the final moments of the Parliament, Bill 36, which is basically um, another censorship uh, attempt. Are you... 
Is this a trend? (laughs) This is appalling. It's like government wants to dictate who can say what to whom. I mean, this is what is appalling to me. And the the freedom, some freedom that they had in C-10, in I think it was Section 14, they removed. So the government's going to be in control and get over it. No. What happened to freedom? Freedom of speech is so important. And this is what baffles me, is how they're getting away with this. It's shocking. The other issue, and I, and I don't know if you have thoughts on it, but the, the debate is going back and forth about the uh, role of two foreign Chinese scientists in, in a Winnipeg lab looking at all these issues, including uh, the pandemic. Um, and, and the government saying back to us, we're not releasing, even on order from their own speaker in the chamber, release yes. these documents saying, no, we can't let you see anything because it's national security. Oh, um, ridiculous. And from China, for God's sakes, China that controls its population so dramatically, social credit scores everywhere. A, a quick little story. This, this high school student graduated with all A's, A pluses, brilliant student in China. He wanted to go to university, of course, so he started applying to universities. He was denied entry into any university. Why? Because the social credit scores of his parents were considered to be unacceptable by the Chinese government. Can you imagine? You're punishing the child because what you think is unacceptable on the part of the parent's behavior? Oh, it just made me cringe. They look at everything, everybody's behavior, and they decide what is acceptable and not. No freedom. You and I, I, I don't know the details of this because it was back a bit, but you had signed on to a project with one of the big tech companies called Sidewalk Labs where there was going to be a monitoring process in city. In, in Toronto, in cities to see, you know, it, it seemed so, you know, we're just going to find out what people do and what they like and this and that. You, you resigned saying this is not a direction we should be going. Let me tell you why I resigned. When they first approached me, Sidewalk Labs, um, to build a smart city in Toronto, which is where I live, Ontario, uh, they approached me because they wanted me to embed my privacy by design framework into the smart city they built. And I was delighted because I'm in Toronto. I want a smart city of privacy, not a smart city of surveillance. And I'm on the International Council of Smart Cities. All of the smart cities coming out of China and Dubai, et cetera, they're all smart cities of surveillance. So I was delighted when Sidewalk Labs approached me because they wanted to embed privacy by design into our smart city. So after I studied it for a while, I said, here's what we have to do because the technology is going to be on 24-7, all the sensors, et cetera. We need to de-identify at source. And what I meant by that was the minute you pick up any person, any information on one of your sensors or cameras, you strip it of personal identifiers. So no personal identifiers will be linked to the data you collect. That way you'll have lots of data, which will be invaluable, but the privacy risk will have been removed because you can't link it to an identifiable individual. That's what privacy is all about, linking to identifiable individuals. They went along with that. At first they thought, great, we'll do that, no problem. And then after a little while, they were given some grief by some third parties about how they were doing things. So they said, okay, we'll create a data trust where we will invite all of the IT companies, et cetera, to join us in terms of how we deal with the data. Then they said the following, this is the only thing they ne- they did not consult me on because they knew what I would say. And they said at the meeting, I'll never forget the board meeting. They said, and of course, we'll encourage you to de-identify data at source 
but you know, we can't make you do it. You're independent companies. And the minute I heard that, I knew I had to resign. I resigned the following morning because basically they were saying, you can do whatever you want. You can't. So in smart cities, we can embed privacy by design into it, de-identify at source. Um, Mississauga is now considering developing a smart city precisely using that kind of platform. And I'm working with them to ensure that they can embed privacy by design into their operations. But that's the problem with the Sidewalk Labs, these big companies, they promise one thing and then they go against it, in which case you have to leave. This is, I think, what's troubling everybody. I mean, we're watching the erosion of freedom of speech. Certainly, uh, I see that. And, and I don't care what people think of Donald Trump. You shouldn't deplatform people because you disagree with them. That's kind of the fundamental definition of free speech that you've got to accept speech that you disagree with. That's right. Um, so, you know, you see this, we, we know that uh, big tech companies are tracking our conversations, not, you know, I mean, if I send you an email and say, you know, gosh, I really like such and such a washing machine, all of a sudden I'm getting ads for you know, that washing machine. Are, are we just so far down this road that all your dreams and desires about privacy are just wishful thinking? No. And I have to say no, because we can never give up. You don't give up on privacy. You don't give up on freedom. But it's it's like a chess game, point counterpoint. You know, there'll be certain intrusions into privacy, and then we push back. For example, now there's a whole decentralized identity foundation that has been developed with large companies like Microsoft, Intel, etc., IBM. And what they do is they're trying to decentralize your identifying information so it can't be retained by governments or companies. And this is now a whole foundation and it's growing. So for every terrible surveillance move, there appears to be a counter move. It's not easy. And what concerns me is that if we have vaccine passports, the ability to push back will be so difficult. That's why I'm opposing it so strongly. And we can find ways around this. We have over time. Yes, surveillance is growing and so are privacy protective measures. Encryption, end-to-end -end encryption. Apple excels at this. And we have end-to-end -end encryption that protects your data very strongly. So we have measures that can be taken. And we have companies like Apple, et cetera, that believe in this. But we have to push back on vaccine passports because I don't know how we're going to deal with it otherwise. Anne, it's always great to talk to you. You're, you're out there defending, as you say, very, very fundamental uh, charter, constitutional, very, very personal rights. So thank you for your efforts on this behalf. And, and we'll be checking back with you as this discussion unfolds somehow, somewhere, somehow. It's my pleasure to join you. I love working with you. And I'm just praying we can get the message out. Privacy forms the foundation of our freedom. We need both. Thank you. Dr. Anne Kavukian, the world's leading privacy experts, and she now leads something called uh, Privacy by Design Center of Excellence. And you heard a little bit there about what she's trying to do and the issues she's, uh, she's trying to make sure that we all understand and that the corporate and political world that, uh, that we live in also understand. Thanks so much, Anne. We'll talk soon. My pleasure. Bye-bye. So we've reached out to Blake Murdoch. He's a senior research associate at the University of Alberta's Health Law 
Institute. So his research looks at health and law and the intersection of those two issues, policy, bioethics, informed consent, alternative medicine, all of these issues. And more recently, you might have read his article on vaccine passports and concerns about misleading information about vaccination, particularly, of course, online. So he's got a doctor of laws, he's got an MBA and a degree in political science and government, all from the University of Alberta. And he uh, joins us today from Edmonton. Welcome, welcome, Mr. Murdoch. Are you a so doctor, a professor, or what should I call you? I'm not a member of faculty, no, I'm, okay. I'm uh, just one of these lowly lawyers who's gone into academia and trying to, <laughs> to make a difference there, so. That is an interesting decision, isn't it, professionally? <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I mean, I've, I've always loved the content of law, but I prefer to be sort of uh, fighting for what I think is correct rather than sort of being for hire. So that's that's sort of how I uh, do things. Of course, there's other ways to do that in law, but I've been happy yeah. with uh, working at the Health Law Institute. Well, let's tackle this uh, issue because it's one for all governments, uh, domestically, foreign, everywhere. We're going to have to wrestle this issue of of a vaccine passport. I'm not sure that's exactly the right word, but it's the shorthand because when you talk about a passport, you kind of think about travel and going somewhere else, but this is also an issue uh, domestically. So um, where, do you, where do you start in this discussion? Yeah, I think you, you made a very good point. It's important to distinguish between international and domestic uh, vaccine passports and some of the language, you know, uh, academically shifting to vaccine certificates for sort of the yeah. use uh, domestically. And so international vaccine passports are fairly inevitable for obvious reasons uh, around different countries, not wanting to let people who aren't citizens in uh, unless they've got certain protections. Uh, domestic vaccine passports are the more controversial issue and the issue uh, that I was sort of mostly focusing on when I wrote uh, my recent piece there. Yeah, because I mean, we're already seeing it. You can, you know, go to a football game in Saskatchewan, but you can't in uh, Manitoba. And, you know, whether it's going to, you know, a Bruce Springsteen concert or the Calgary Stampede like these, how are we going to make this distinction without creating um, a, a class system or or a caste system, I think even worse, of people who are vaccinated and people who aren't, uh, even though many in that latter category may have immunity uh, because they've had the disease itself. How, how are we going to do that? Yeah, so it, it's, it's a complicated question, but what I've said before in relation to the two-tier society uh, question is that I do sort of reject that notion generally. Of course, there are individuals, some individuals who can't uh, be vaccinated or right. uh, you know, certainly aren't eligible yet, and, uh, like children who need to be accommodated, of course, uh, under human rights law. And of course, age is a protected, for example, protected grounds for discrimination under the charter. The choice to get vaccinated if it, there's not a legitimate you know, like, uh, vaccine contraindicating reason uh, if there's no legitimate reason to not get vaccinated, that's not necessarily something that's protected by law. So there, there is also the option for individuals who are sort of, uh, you know, not using the vaccine passport because they don't want to be vaccinated to choose to get vaccinated. So there's, it's not like people are stuck in this class or anything like that. So I wouldn't call it a case system. On top of that, I would, I would just say that, um, 
you, you have to look at, you know, what's the trade-off of not doing this. And so that's something I've mentioned before. So that's another mm -hmm. topic, but uh, you know, this is all, you know, this isn't stuff that we would do in normal times, obviously. And so we need to look, what's the public health need for this? Because it's, it's about public health. It's not only about, you know, increasing vaccination rates or anything like that. We don't really know the numbers here, or at least I don't, but um, some of the indications stateside in the U.S., for example, is that it's two-thirds vaccinated and, and a third of the population that haven't responded either because they're vaccine hesitant or they will not get vaccinated or they already have immunity or they have a health condition. Like, that's the large category. It's not just... Uh, and I'm assuming the numbers will be roughly the same here, um, maybe right. a little bit more take up on the vaccine. So it's not yeah. something where we can just say, oh, well, you know, if you don't get it, you you can't participate in society. No, I, I wouldn't say that. And and just to be clear, um, the scientific, uh, or the, the medical recommendations are that people who have contracted COVID should still get at least one dose of vaccine. And there have been you know, studies showing that that can increase their antibodies by a hundred times and things like that. So, so it's important to know that uh, if you've had it, you should still get vaccinated as it will likely provide a lot of additional protection. Uh, and then of course, with variants, there's the possibility of being reinfected uh, if you don't, if you don't, um, you know, if, if you haven't had that variant yet. So, well, so, we also know that people who have been vaccinated can also get COVID and, and infect others. Like, it, certainly, it's, really it's possible. I just wouldn't equate them on a statistical level because that they're very different. And also the cases of rare disease are, are lower. Um, so, you know, that's something where there's more research ongoing, of course. Uh, yeah. And we'll know more about, you know, how people who have had it are responding to future variants and things like that as we go. And so it's always, you know, through the pandemic, it's been very difficult to sort of evolve as the science comes out and always needing to sort of adjust to that. And that's something that, you know, hopefully we're getting more used to as a society, but it is certainly <laughs> difficult. Um, well, and, I, oh, so I, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. Yeah. I was going to say to address your point about, you know, certainly just excluding a third of the population. I think uh, it's important to, to think about how we would apply these vaccine passports. Uh, passports or certificates, right? Um, you know, you can't apply them to essential services like the ability to go buy groceries without providing at least an alternative means of access. So the, the primary uses are, are for uh, non-essential services where there's large group settings, right? So concerts, mm -hmm. stadiums, gyms where people are, uh, you know, are, are breathing heavily and, and there's evidence that they can cause super spreader events, uh, things like that. So you know, um, but what about going to see your mom and dad at the old folks home or grandma? You know, that's uh, that's a very personal thing. I mean, it it may seem uh, optional, but I don't think family's optional. <laughs> yeah, well, there's the first need is to protect the individuals that live in in, in that area in that that home. So yeah. I'll give an example. My grandfather died of COVID last year, and I didn't get to see him. And so, you know, if you were still alive and living in that in that home, I certainly would not want unvaccinated people going in to see him, uh, even if he had been vaccinated um, since, you know, he was late in his life. And, and you know, uh -huh. the vaccine is powerful, but it, there is some reduction in immunity amongst the amongst the older folks. So I, th 
I think this is where we're getting into and we're watching it unfold in the States and uh, which is, you know, everybody was told that if they vaxxed up and got their two shots, you know, you had freedom. You could take the mask off, you could visit your family. Um, and and now that's being pulled back yet again uh, with yep. mask mandates. And and I we're kind of at that point. I was talking to a, an older friend this morning. I mean, well into actually, she's in her nineties, and she just she just said like, I can't do this anymore. I just can't do this. And this is a very compliant woman who you know got her shots and stayed indoors for her two weeks after you know did the whole thing. But we're kind of at that point in. Our country and elsewhere where people are going hold on when do we decide that this is something we have to live with right i think that this sort of relates to vaccine passports but it's not necessarily all about vaccine yeah. passports it's it's about the point at which society says everyone's had the opportunity to get vaccinated so now the choice you know the the ability to um, be protected is up to you, and we're not going to you know enforce public health measures anymore. And my view on that, as someone who has an eight month or an eight month old baby, right, yeah. um, uh, is that until like the entire population, especially children, have the opportunity to get vaccinated, I think it's it's irresponsible to uh, not have public health measures, uh, even though children are less likely to, to to die from COVID. Uh, you know, there are a lot of potential long-term health effects and of course evolving understanding of even the new variants. So um, my view is is that sort of time to sort of come to a point where we're talking about personal responsibility uh, and that sort of decision is not yet. Okay. And then personal responsibility versus personal choice. Right. I mean, some like countries are, are going of, to, yeah, are going to go down the, the vaccine mandate path. Um, you know, my unfortunately, what's happened is there's an infodemic of, of misinformation on the internet, and um, we have had some great success in reducing uh, vaccine hesitancy in Canada. Right, it's come down yeah. significantly according to Angus Reid polls. So that's that's a really positive thing. On the other hand, in Alberta, for example, where I live, it's 22% recently uh, said they wouldn't seek it out if it was offered to them. So it's actually gone up from the previous poll. Uh, so there's some sign that there might be some increases in some part, parts of the country of hesitancy. But but the problem with opening up right now is the Delta variant ultimately. If, uh, the problem is, is we were promised sort of that everything would be good if we got to 70% vaccinated based on right. the estimates of the initial virus. And now Delta has put a huge wrench into things and everyone, no one's happy about it. Everyone's very upset about it, but um, it's, it's not possible to have 70% of the population vaccinated and have a concert, for example, with 15 or 20,000 people and not have a super spreader event. If 30% of those people are, are, are uh, unvaccinated. I mean, not to avoid them. I mean, like not necessarily every case would have a super spreader event, but that would lead to mm -hmm. them, right? So, would it help if the governments actually said, uh, and I know there's a debate a debate in the states about this, if they just said, "Look, that we're taking these off the experimental uh, category, and we're we're saying they're 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 the real thing." I mean, because there's you hear that argument. I, I mean, it's actually true. 
in a sense that this is we, this is all a big experiment. We won't know what the impact of all this is for, you know, one year, two years, five years. We're still going to be studying this probably 40 years later. Yeah, I think the long-term impacts of COVID are much, much scarier than the long-term impacts of, of the vaccine. Um, it's very unlikely based on the way the vaccine is designed from the medical experts and scientific experts yeah. that I've spoken to that, that, that there'll be any significant long-term impacts from vaccination. But of course we've got, you know, the whole long COVID and we've got all sorts of issues around, you know, for, for, for children as well, like about 10% are experiencing symptoms out five weeks out uh, from yeah. being infected. So the idea, yeah, the idea of sort of opening up before they've had a chance to at least have their parents choose to, to get vaccinated to me is, is very troubling. Uh, it, it, the problem is, yeah, these, these passports are, are a public health measure, but they're sort of being um, framed as an exclusion or just a way to pressure people to get vaccinated. But the, the reality is that's sort of a side effect. And, and the main measure, the main reason for the vaccine passports is to be a public health measure. But it, it does have that impact. I mean, it's it's if you don't do this, you won't be able to participate in certain activities of society, whether it's going to a concert or a football game or or the, the, the grocery store, whatever it may be. Like we, we have to have some rules about this. And I don't know, you're you're the one looking at where health law or the legal system and health issues intersect. How do we do this when we've got provincial and territorial governments and a federal government, and then we're dealing with the international community as well? Like, how do we even get to a place where we have some common ground on this? Well, domestically, there have been legal analyses, uh, at least one important legal analysis done around the, uh, the legality of uh, vaccine passports and whether they would likely survive a charter challenge. That was done by Dr. Colleen Flood, a uh, law professor yeah. at the University of Ottawa and her team. And so they did look at several charter rights uh, and and also, of course, Section 1 of the charter, which, as you know, as a senator, doesn't uh, guarantee all the rights within, especially if there's an important need like public health. Um, right. And so they, they they argued that that this would survive that sort of challenge. And the reason is because it is primarily a public health measure. So when you're looking at the alternatives, right, because unfortunately with Delta transmissibility being just so high, there's going to be a need for, for, for these public health measures. And so uh, there's another way of looking at vaccine passports, it's sort of a shutdown with an exception for vaccinated individuals, which is sort of the reverse way that most people look at it. But if the alternative is a shutdown, uh, you know, none of us have the right to go into a property, uh, a private property that's a non-essential service when it's shut down due to a right. public health measure. So that in a way it's it's no different. It's just that we're making an exception uh, for individuals who are vaccinated. So that might be a hard sell. <laughs> yeah, I understand. I'm just thinking if I'm a premier legally. or, <laughs> yeah, legally, yeah. Yeah, I do think legally they're they're highly defensible under Canadian law, and I also think that they're necessary um, for the sort of the reasons I've, I've stated. Uh, we're we're experiencing exponential growth here in Alberta right now, so you know, and there's yeah. no no plan to do this. So unfortunately, nothing's probably going to happen, uh, and they're going to stop they're going to stop tracking also cases. So 
we're just going to have to yeah. watch hospitalizations. Um, so, so yeah, so it, it is a trade-off, but it's, it, it requires relative risk analysis and we need to look at what's the trade-off of not doing this. And um, I do think, you know, I guess maybe the reason I was brought into the show in a sense, the privacy concerns yeah. uh, exist, that, but I do think they're over, over. Yeah, that's exactly where I want to go because you do sure. sort of say, look, I think that's overstated and, um, and that, you know, and for me, part of this is I think a generational thing too, which is people like you and people that are younger, you're, you're used to living on your phones. You're used to exposing your personal information in a way that older generations are not. Um, and it's very hard to figure out how we would share our health information without it being identified uh, and connected to us. And of course, with the geolocation technology that is all on our phone, people already know where we are. So it, there are, I, I think we have to have an answer to it rather than just say, look, your privacy is already compromised every time you go online, so get over it. Right. And I wasn't, my intention when I mentioned that in the article that, you know, we have basically have the complete mechanism for total surveillance already in place. Yeah. It wasn't to, um, it wasn't to, to say that sort of two wrongs make a right. And we'll get to the more detailed privacy arguments in a second. I, I, I sort of agree with that, but if you look at, for example, Facebook usage, I think there's a very high penetration across generations of, of yeah. use of social media. Yeah. And, and so uh, you know, all of us, maybe, maybe people believe their privacy is being protected, but then you have Facebook being fi fined $5 billion in 2019 for, from the FTC for, you know, breach of privacy. So yes, hello. Um, <laughs> that's why I also say the article in a way, like we're, most of our privacy has been compromised unintentionally because there's this sort of expectation that you read like a hundred pages of legal documentation when you click yes on your app and no one reasonably does that. Right. So, yeah. um, it's unintentional uh, the way that the privacy has been packaged and sold. But yeah, what I was trying to say around the the two wrongs don't make a right was yeah. um, there's there's a pressing pressing need for this, and it can be done in a way that minimizes the use of information. There's a pressing health need to save people's lives. And this, this isn't about you know lining the pockets of corporations the way that most privacy breaches are because they're you know packaging their data and selling it. Mm -hmm. So. Um, I think I did watch uh, Dr. Kabukian uh, come yeah. on your show, uh, and you know she made some interesting points. I I didn't agree with her fully that this would necessarily result. I felt like she was talking about a lot of worst case scenarios, right? Which I think yeah. you know she brought up the the Patriot Act or whatnot in the U.S. and 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 uh, the way that things can sort of spiral. And I I do think it's it's important to be cognizant of that possibility. But I also think it's very possible to design vaccine passports in a way that uh, sort of address these concerns and and minimize uh, any any concern. And so, but unless give, it's okay, go ahead. Well, I was going to say I can give you an example. Um, if yeah, the government, do. because private private corporations are already doing this, right? I think Calgary Stampede, the Nashville, uh, the Nashville party or venue or whatnot, yeah. already was requiring proof of vaccination to get in. So these systems are starting to be developed privately. And so that's a, one reason why having it centralized through the government, which already owns and controls your health information would be the best way because they already know everything about your health information. 
Um, so you could design, for example, you an app. say that with such ease, right? <laughs> they already know it all. So. Yeah, well, under Canadian law, uh, your health records are owned by you know clinics and 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 the government, not by you, and you have the right to access and challenge the accuracy of them. So yeah, the government certainly knows whether you're vaccinated or not, right? Um, and that's why you received that sheet, and they've entered it into the system. So that that's a reality that we've been living with for for a while in terms of the online health record system and sort of different health information laws that that, that deal with that. So well, they was, would be I, best people to run it. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I'm just going through this myself because I, you know, travel internationally and, and do that. So I've got my health record here in Saskatchewan, but to print that out, it doesn't really, I, I, it doesn't identify me. I have a little piece of paper that says, you know, the little square and that you got a vaccine on such and such a date and that's been entered officially. But if I, it's, it's got to identify, if I go to a border, I've got to be able to say, these are my two vaccines, right? And when right. they happen and how they happen. And right. so it has to be connected to me. And then it has to have some, you know, official stamp of approval. Otherwise, it's just me saying that I've had two vaccines. That's certainly true for international travel. And I do think the privacy concerns are more significant for international travel because you are going to have powerful countries basically, you know, pulling up profiles for everyone in the world about this. So right. that's that to me is a bigger concern than domestically because the domestic ones, despite sort of the uh, people's perception of ethical issues with the domestic ones, there it's easier to design it in a way that's sort of internal and, and safer. Um, I'll give you an example. So. One thing you bring up that's an important point is we there are not everyone has a cell phone and it wouldn't be fair for access to, to not have a paper version. So there will need to be a paper version um, available. And so that will be potentially, yeah, that will be identifying. There is the possibility in some cases to actually just have a printed QR code, right? You, you've seen these QR codes. So you yep. could actually print one or send one that's printed to individuals, but then you still do require the, you know, the person checking it to have technology. So there's sort of uh, details there to be sorted out. But for the, the vast majority of users, you could have a government app, for example, where you receive the, the you sort of register and the information's only going to the government and then it sort of verifies that it's you and then you get your QR code. And then the private company has a government app, again, that doesn't allow them to store any data on their device. They download that, they scan it, and then it just gives a green light or whatever and you go on through. And that, so in that, in that, example it's not even 100 percent certain that you it, that uh, they're receiving information that you've been vaccinated because you could be part of an exemption group and it doesn't need to specify if it's just a qr code so very most likely you are so we could just say vaccinated. you're okay you're okay to go that's right across yeah. the border and it and it may not be that you're vaccinated it may be that you are in an exempt category yeah and i don't mean sort of to cross borders this is more for the use of for non-essential services that i was talking about but what it Here. would do is, okay. is take the storage out of out of the of data out of the hands of, of, of private corporations i mean private corporations are still bound by you know privacy law like pipeta and then mm -hmm. uh, provincial equivalents right so they still are not really allowed to store anything beyond what is needed to serve a purpose right there's the basic uh, privacy principle of limiting collection, use, disclosure, and retention. 
So they ha would have to follow that, but you could set it up so that the government essentially runs the whole thing and no information is going into the storage of private companies. Okay, so let me um, put this dilemma to you that our government and our health officials in this country begged people to take whatever vaccine was available, um, the first and fastest, and, and people went and took AstraZeneca. Um, we knew the Americans would never recognize this vaccine because they were giving it to us because they wouldn't use it. Um, so now we have a whole bunch of people in this country that are vaccinated with AstraZeneca or some kind of mix. So what is our responsibility as a country? If, if we've got these passports going across the border and they can't tell in America whether we've been vaccinated or whether we're in an exempt category, are we somehow legally or morally obligated to say this person is double vaccinated, we're happy with it, but it's with AstraZeneca, which you guys don't recognize. Like, how do we wrestle right. that one? <laughs> and I just read a day ago that AstraZeneca is now applying for approval. So if, because they <laughs> never actually applied because the FDA probably told them behind the scenes, don't bother, we're, we got enough mRNA, right? Yeah, um, yeah. So, so now maybe they'll go through that and maybe that'll resolve it if they do approve it. Um, but certainly I don't think the domestic system would necessarily just be able to work internationally. You, you are going to have to prove to the United States or, or other countries that you have received two doses and probably what type as well. And, and yeah, I mean, um, you know, controlling the spread is important for also having the ability to travel internationally. So that's sort of another argument in a way to have good, strong public health measures, right? Um, I think that what's happening in Alberta right now, for example, is likely to impact the willingness of other countries to allow Canadians to travel to them. Well, the, the UK is still not letting us in, even though they used AstraZeneca too, but you know, so we've got a lot of issues. What do you think the time frame on this is? I mean, people uh, on the one hand are ready to, you know, get back out there. Kids are going to school. There's the debate about masking you know, summer is almost coming to an end. People are trying to decide whether they're going to take a winter holiday and go on a cruise. Like, can this possibly be turned around in any reasonable length of time? It depends on outreach, yeah, to get more people vaccinated. Uh, it's, it's a very provincial question as well, because Alberta's yeah. been open for a month now. And, our, our and Saskatchewan, too, yeah. Yeah, yeah, similar, right? But you know, some yeah. provinces have been just slowly starting to work it open now. So uh, it's there's going to be waves at different times. The fall worries me a lot. Of course, I live in Alberta, and there are no health measures anymore, and also they're going to stop tracking. So I'm very worried as an Albertan that might not be the same, uh, you know, for yeah. for people in other provinces. It's likely we're going to see a big fourth wave. It's going to not have. Uh, the case to hospitalization and death rate is going to ratio is going to sort of drop, right? There's or or increase, I suppose. Uh, there's going to be a lot more cases, to be clear, than there are hospitalizations relative to previous waves. Right. But when you remove public health measures, Delta is so transmissible that every single person in society is going to get it. That's the problem. So, you know, you can have a lower, much lower death rate because of vaccination, but then everyone who obviously isn't vaccinated, which for example, in Alberta is 35% of the population doesn't have a mm -hmm. single dose. Then everyone's going to get that. They're going to get sick at, at a very high rate, you know, similar to previous. 
and then you're going to have some breakthrough in infections. And then, uh, you know, since the, 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 not the high risk groups, there's going to be fewer deaths, but there's going to be a lot of long-term disability and other issues. But as, okay, but as people get ill, then th there is some natural immunity there. So again, we've got, because we don't know how, how Delta will play out for people who need or want to move about in the country, we still have to then resolve this issue of passports or certificates or whatever we want to call it, because that's going to increasingly be an issue for all the reasons that you cite. So if I go to Ottawa to go to the Senate uh, from Saskatchewan, what's going to happen when I land at the airport or when I go to the Senate bit? Like we're going to have to figure out where these certificates are required and people will need them. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure that the implementation of domestic vaccine passports would be for travel between provinces. Uh, you know, there has been some restriction. Let's hope of travel. not. But <laughs> yeah, there has been some yeah. restriction of travel between provinces during the pandemic, during states of yeah. emergency. Yeah. Uh, but I don't. Yeah, I don't see that as the main use case. And and so because health information is controlled provincially, ultimately, if there are vaccine passports, they're going to likely be provincially managed or privately managed, which would be the worst yeah. worst option in my opinion. Um, and, and so there'll just be different standards in different places. But we're going to have, what I guess what my question is, is how quickly can we ramp this up so that people who are, who need or want to move and who are vaccinated can go to events? I mean, if, if I'm being asked if I want to go to a concert or a store, I, I don't, you know, we don't know what it might be. What can I produce? We need an answer. We're being told not you can't have paper documents because that's too easy to fudge or to reproduce and you know borrow somebody else's vaccination document and change it um but then right. the other issue of if you don't have a cell phone with you 24 7 and a qr code then what right yeah you want to have the paper backup so i mean Quebec's already sent out QR codes and they're only they're sort of using them in a targeted manner depending on case rates right that was that's what they're doing uh, Manitoba sent out a proof of vaccination um, the other provinces aren't aren't really doing it I'm not sure if there's any smaller ones that are still doing it or planning to do it so in terms of how it would be implemented it would be done on the provincial level but it's not yeah. going to happen most of the time my argument is just that it's necessary because the alternative is going to be either a lot of people getting sick and and d disabled and some and some dying or the, the full lockdowns again. So to me, this is a much better measure than full lockdowns um, because just the si emerging scientific reality is is just that with Delta and the current rates of vaccination, there there's still public health issues with large gatherings indoors, especially. And what about the view that? We are just, you know, we're, we're not going to eradicate um, COVID or coronaviruses. And that at a certain point, we have to say, you take responsibility for where you go and how you live and who you come in contact with, understanding that this is a possibility in our society, as is the, you know, the flu every fall when you get on a plane or, you know, in close contact with people that somehow we have to shift our thinking about this to it's a fact of life as opposed to it's it's an emergency 
Right. I, I do think there will be a time that COVID becomes endemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not, you know, it's, it's spread so wide now that it's le- unlikely to be eradicated and, uh, unless, right. you know, future vaccines can, can be even more effective. I think that there'll be a need for public health measures. That doesn't necessarily mean full lockdowns or any, anything super serious for a couple of years at least. Because what it is is sort of a race of the science and the, and, and the vaccination and, and you know, probably new versions of the, of the vaccine that target Delta, et cetera, versus the spread. And so the faster, you know, we're, we've got uh, something like 4 billion doses worldwide, something close to that uh, out right now. Yeah. And so once we can get, you know, Delta came from India because, you know, it, it was a part of the world that didn't have access to vaccination early. Uh, and so, you know, once the whole world is sort of getting proper vaccination, and then we can get an update that addresses new variants, we can hopefully stop the spread of the virus and also prevent new variants, right? Right now, you know, if we, if we just open up, unfortunately, it's still co- co- a lot of cooking, sort of cooking the new variant, you could say. That yeah. was a line that uh, that uh, Dr. Obogu at my faculty mentioned recently. So I yeah. thought that was a good one. Well, this is going to be um, a tough issue for governments, whether whatever level to deal with, and and for all of us as citizens, I guess, to decide what level of uh, exposure risk we're comfortable with, what role of surveillance we're comfortable with. Right? This is this is the uh, the battle, and it's up to guys like you looking at health policy research and whether or not we can make some rules that are legal. We uh, really appreciate your comments on this today. Really helpful. Uh, Thank you so much for having me, Senator, and uh, I really appreciate it. No, it's a good conversation. Blake Murdoch, Senior Research Associate at the University of Alberta's Health Law Institute. Thanks for joining us and thanks for being with us for this edition of No Nonsense with Pamela Wallach.